It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, December 10th, 2023. I'm Jared Halper. Republicans in the House are looking to bolster their case on an impeachment of President Biden. For the Republicans, if they're able to put that uh, victory up on the scoreboard before the end of the year, that's probably a good thing in their rock rib red districts. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. The U.S. Attorney General says Manuel Rocha's U.S. service represents the highest reaching and longest lasting infiltration by a foreign agent, in this case on behalf of the government of Cuba. This is an intelligence officer's dream. When your country is negotiating a transformational deal with your adversary, you sure would like to have spies connected in your adversary's government and at the highest level. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Last week, I told you about the parting shot from expelled Republican George Santos telling reporters the hell with this place as he left the Capitol. That wasn't the sentiment expressed by former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy this week, but he did tell colleagues he's out. It is time to pursue my passion in a new arena. While I'll be departing the House at the end of this year, I will never, ever give up fighting for this country that I love so much. McCarthy's early exit is not unexpected, given his ouster at the hands of several Republican lawmakers earlier this year. But it adds to the growing math problem for the new speaker, Mike Johnson. Santos's Republican seat is vacant for a few months, and now so is McCarthy's, shrinking an already slim majority at a critical time for House Republicans. Later this week, Johnson wants a formal vote authorizing what's already underway, an impeachment inquiry of President Biden. The House Oversight Committee is leading an investigation that has focused a lot on the overseas businesses of the president's son. Hunter. That focus could be headed for a new confrontation with his testimony required by a subpoena later this week. Hunter Biden is insisting he answer questions in a public hearing. The committee wants a closed door deposition. Then there are the new legal troubles for the president's son. A federal grand jury in California has indicted Hunter Biden on nine new charges, three felonies and six misdemeanors, all related to failing to pay more than a million dollars in taxes. He's already facing federal charges in Delaware on felony firearms counts. So we start with that impeachment probe. And if these new developments are bolstering the case for Republicans, Fox News senior congressional correspondent Chad Pergram shares his reporting. This is where Republicans argued, oh, we don't need this because they didn't have the votes. Just the fact that they have the votes now, they can forge ahead uh, with this. It it does help them um, make this a little more official. It does help them, uh, you know, deal and and request documents and witnesses and depositions and things from administration officials. Uh, You know, kind of that's the precedent here because Republicans were critical of of, of the Democrats back in 2019 when they were doing some of this in the fall. 
of 2019 and didn't formalize this for a bit. Then they did. Uh, and so that was kind of the, the marker here that you have to, you know, approve an impeachment inquiry here. It also probably is a good vote politically for some Republicans because it works to their advantage politically with their base and, and also just the fact that they can do it. You know, Republicans have very few accomplishments. Their words, if you go talk to Chip Roy, the Republican from Texas, who says, you know, can you point to one thing is what he said that we've done uh, this year uh, that uh, that we can go campaign on. Well, guess what? If you vote to at least have an impeachment inquiry, even if it's not impeachment. That, and again, the public does not generally follow this at the same granular level that we do, Jared. And so when they hear that, even if they never impeach the president of the United States, that probably helps the Republicans on that front. It probably helps Mike Johnson who's really starting to get an earful from conservatives now, being able to at least move something, you know, that red meat that goes to that conservative base uh, that even Kevin McCarthy wasn't able to do. So it doesn't change anything. But, uh, you know, for the Republicans, if they're able to put that uh, victory up on the scoreboard before the end of the year, that's probably a good thing, uh, you know, in their, you know, rock rib red districts. And for those Republicans who are not in rock rib red districts, which, by the way, are going to be the more important Republicans mm -hmm. next year as uh, Republicans struggle to keep the House. This is a vote that is probably much less uh, toxic, much less um, threatening than an impeachment vote, right? They're basically just saying, yes. hey, we're voting to do what we're doing, to get answers, to ask questions, to get people to, to testify. Yes, exactly. And, and the fact that so many of those members were willing to come along now the reason why the House had not voted on that score yet is they didn't have the votes. It's about the math, as I always say. Mm -hmm. Guess what? Now, it is about the math, and it is about the votes because um, they have the votes. And I was struck what by, shifted? you know, some Republicans by, well, what changed was all of a sudden, you know, and this was one thesis here, and I believe some of this here. They said, you know, members had mostly been trapped here in Washington for about almost 11 weeks over the fall. Yes. And over Thanksgiving, they heard from their constituents who said, what about those investigations? But some of these members, it was almost like kind of warming them up. It took a few months. Now, Nancy Pelosi, she kind of got in front of uh, some more moderate Democrats who were from swing districts who had national security credentials and realized once some of them were for impeachment, that that was the direction that she should go and lead the party because you've had Kevin McCarthy and also Mike Johnson in charge right now, it's been unclear the direction to go. But but I'm struck by the fact that you have moderates like uh, Mark Molinaro, who's a freshman Republican from a district in, in New York, um, swing district. He's for it now. Probably even more vulnerable, John Duarte, who's a freshman Republican from California. He's for this now. And and I think, uh, you know, his race was the, the second tightest nationwide. He flipped that district uh, last cycle. And I think after the Lauren Boebert victory in Colorado, I think he was only right behind her in terms of uh, his margin of victory. So when you have members like that who are willing to, you know, vote to start the impeachment inquiry, and it's not impeachment, you can at least go back home and, and take some of the pressure off from these, uh, you know, right-wing groups or, or people who, who get up in your grill back home and say, oh, why aren't you doing something on impeachment? Well, they can say, well, I did. That's something. Is, is the other kind of dynamic here that the conditions of the investigation have changed? It's moved to a certain point now where, you know, they do need subpoenas to be to be followed. I know that James Comer and other Republicans leading this have said that they've been stonewalled by the administration and by witnesses. Well, some of that is because, you know, if you look at the precedent again, the way they handled the Clinton impeachment back in the late 90s, uh, the way they handled the first uh, Trump impeachment in 2019, the precedent is you vote 
to formalize an inquiry. And then the White House of um, both parties, a Republican White House with President Trump, Democratic White House with President Clinton, they say, OK, you know, we think you guys are legit now. We will respond. So that does give the House a little bit more oomph in their request. And, and it's almost as though it's not so much for the Congress, Jared, that it's more so for the administration. Although, as I say, this thing is rife with politics. And it may be for the courts, too, right? Because these are subpoenas that could be challenged. There could be executive privileges. There could be a host of reasons that somebody says this is an illegitimate investigation. Now a judge kind of says, well, it was sanctioned by the House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that, that, that helps in that sense, too. Let me ask about, because we talk about the numbers, right? And it's always about the math, as you point out. Um, Well, the arithmetic uh, shrunk again, or will be shrinking at the Mm -hmm. end of this year. Uh, Ousted Speaker Kevin McCarthy said that he will be uh, retiring before his term is up at the end of this year. Uh, I guess initially, I'll I'll sort of share what my thoughts were. I want to get yours, is I was not all that surprised, because why would he kind of want to stay in a workplace that, you know, didn't think very highly of him. Uh, what right. was your he reaction was not go- to the news he that, was not that, stick that he's around. leaving? I, I was shocked when I got a, a script from someone here at Fox News who shall remain unnamed and said, you know, McCarthy's news shocked the Capitol. And I said, no, it didn't. And we made the change right away because it, I said this this way. Yeah, and I understand, you know, these aren't people who cover Congress no, I get, like yeah. we do every day. But but, I, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to beat up our, our colleagues here, but you get the idea. And and he was not going to stick around. In fact, it had been made very clear to me that there was going to be a an announcement or a decision made in or around December. And in fact, the filing deadline uh, was Friday. You know, Mm. you could now certainly you could file and this happens all the time just to cover yourself and then make an announcement later. Um, You know, this is where a lot of members were said they were disappointed, uh, but happy. Uh, That was what uh, Tom Emmer, the Republican whip, said for Kevin McCarthy, said, you know, you know, that's that's a good thing for him uh, to get out of this place. Uh, I mentioned John Duarte earlier. He said this was just a terrible you know, mistake that Republicans made kicking him out and kind of showing him the door. Um, But, uh, you know, Kevin McCarthy, you know, he was always going to probably end this way. You know, we always thought that maybe it was going to be a short speakership. You Mm -hmm. saw what happened back in January, 15 rounds spread over five days, middle of the night Mm -hmm. vote finally on the uh, wee hours of a Saturday morning when he finally became speaker, did not get to become the speaker uh, back in 2015, you know, was on the precipice of getting it, but again, just did not have the votes. And that's why they had to go and draft Paul Ryan. So, um, you, you know, we, we, we didn't think that this was going to be long for Kevin McCarthy. And, and I kind of got a sense watching McCarthy here that he knew that was the case, too, because you would watch him. He was always happy to talk to the press. Mm-hmm. I don't know if happy is the right word, but he talked to us a lot yeah. uh, in the hall every five minutes, especially during the debt ceiling or government mm-hmm. shutdown stuff or or even when he wasn't speaker anymore. He was always doing these gaggles in the hallway. Um, you know, he would always stop and, and talk with these tourists in the hall and make, you know, photos and everything else, because I think he realized this was borrowed time. I mean, it's all borrowed time to start with, but his time was probably going to be very brief. And and when I saw that sort of action uh, on his behalf, uh, that told me a lot. And and the other thing, too, in covering the uh, the McCarthy speakership is that sometimes it was a little bit challenging to get information as to what the plan was. 
about a, a bill, a vote, what was the mm -hmm. direction, what was the speaker's thinking, and some of it was because his staff didn't know, that was my impression, and frankly probably because the speaker didn't know what to do yet or hadn't made a decision. And so it was, it was all very much on the fly almost every day. And that's why, among the other reasons, you know, if he had a bigger majority, you know, there was a point in time in the, in the summer and fall of 2022 where he predicted, you know, 40, 50 seats. Yeah. Um, a lot narrower than that. Well, and it's going to be narrower. Obviously, we've talked about the expulsion of uh, George Santos, that special election now set mm -hmm. for um, the middle of February. And by the way, a very tough uh, race, I think, for Republicans to win. That, that is a, a swingy district, and, and obviously Democrats uh, probably have a little bit of wind to their backs, given what just mm -hmm. happened. Uh, a special election in California now for Kevin McCarthy. Not a swing district, but probably a special election that does not happen until, what, probably March? I think they have 180 days is the state law Yeah, probably there. sometime at the end of the winter or first yeah, of spring with they, McCarthy. They, they have a few months. And because you have to get candidates, there has to be a campaign, right? It's not immediate. So right. that narrows the majority uh, at a time when Republicans are going to have no votes to spare on keeping the government open, on whatever comes out of this Ukraine aid debate, on an NDAA, a FISA renewal, a ton of issues that are politically challenging anyway. How does this change the calculus, if at all, for um, for Speaker Johnson? Well, I pressed Tom Emmer on this, the whip, and he said, well, it's always a majority. This was just moments after we learned the McCarthy news. And I said, yeah, he said, well, we are unified around our agenda. Uh, take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> well, they haven't uh, been yet. Right. And that's exactly what I said. I said, you got to be kidding me. He, he said, well, we've, 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 we agree generally on these appropriations bills, but that's the problem. They haven't been able to pass many of their things yet. And the fewer votes you have, the more challenging it's going to be. What happens when somebody is out sick? What happens when somebody has a family emergency or, God forbid, dies? This is what Marjorie Taylor Greene... Or even Green, gets just another job offer, which happens in Congress yeah, from time and, to time. And, and, and Jared, I'm going to let you in on a little secret here. I had a conversation... In the middle of the speaker stuff, back in October, a very frank conversation with a, a, a senior member here who really kind of understands the lay of the land and is a pretty honest broker. And they said there are so many members right now who are upset, who are disturbed, who are emotionally kind of a wreck. Uh, you know, it was intimated to me that they didn't think because of their their, their mental status that some of these members would continue uh, to stay here. They, they weren't comfortable being here. They said, they said you know, well, I, I've got better things to do. I can go back home. I don't need this headache. I need peace of mind. Uh, I, I just, you know, you know I, I can get a better paying job. I don't have to fly back and forth to Washington all the time. And that's why you saw so many running for the exits just, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And we'll probably see a lot of that in January and February. Mm -hmm. And it's just not people who say they're announcing their retirements, like Patrick McHenry, who was the acting speaker pro tem, yes. who some people thought might be the speaker. He's going to serve out the rest of the term and leave in early January of 2025 when his term is up. But you have members saying, you know, I'm going to be out of here. Now, Jared, the House of Representatives has yeah. never flipped. That's what I was going to get to. We've I mean, seen that happen in the Senate, but not in the House. I mean, and that's about the only the thing that has right that happening. Yes. And that's about the only thing that has not happened in this Congress. Well, but, and, <laughs> I mean, is, I mean, is that a real is it possible? I mean, I guess it's possible. How likely is it that 
um, Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries is Speaker Hakeem Jeffries before the end of this Congress at the uh, end of next year? I would say very unlikely just because it's never happened. But, you know, we're living in a period politically, but also this Congress of, you know, the the history that's being made every five minutes. Uh, Let's do a crunch on this real quick here. So in the reason that you say, well, it's a three vote margin. Yes, Mm -hmm. it is a three vote margin to win a vote on the floor. But actually flipping control once McCarthy leaves is seven votes. See, that's going to be 220 to 213. Mm -hmm. Two vacancies, Santos, McCarthy. Okay, so that gets you. Okay, so that means you have to have seven people resign just out of the middle of nowhere to even get to a tie or or pass away, God forbid, or something like that. Mm -hmm. You see, that's that's still a lot. Now, let me do a little more. Bill Johnson, Republican from Ohio, he's going to become the president of Youngstown State University in eastern Ohio. So 219 to 213. Well, then guess what? Brian Higgins, Democrat from Western New York, the Buffalo area, he is going to go back home and lead an arts organization. So 219 to 212. Okay. Then, okay, what happens with the Santos district? Okay. Let's Mm -hmm. just say hypothetically the Democrats win that. So you're at 219 to 213. Okay. (laughs) Let's just say in an upset because special elections are special. I'll say that again, special elections are special. Mm -hmm. And we see this all the time where somebody comes, especially in a place like California, somebody comes out of the woodwork the way they do their system out there and might be able to win in a special election in California. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but I've seen stranger things happen. That gets you to 219, 214. So mathematically, the ability to flip the House, it's one thing to have a three seat margin Mm -hmm. on a roll call vote, but to flip control of the House based on the political abacus that I spelled out here for you right now, that is very hard to do. It is about the math, and that's why it's probably unlikely. But I would never rule it out. I know in one of the editorial notes you sent out, you had said that we're not quite in a mansion situation in the House. In other words, there's not just like one person who we're constantly going to be going to on Mm -hmm. the House floor to figure out how they're voting. Yeah, exactly. It's a it's a different group of people here each time. But again, if you have just the right number of people who are absent on just the right day, that's a problem. We say it every week. Um, It's been absolutely unpredictable and and unprecedented. And this week was no exception. And and they have a lot to do now next week. We will see if they are able to reach an accord here on uh, this funding bill for Israel and Ukraine, it seems increasingly unlikely that that's not going to happen, Chad. And that would be uh, one of those things, too, that I think would surprise a lot of people when you look at how bipartisan the support was for those types of spending measures, at least at the beginning of this year. And, and this is where I don't know how that one's going to go yet either. Now, I was told by a pretty senior Republican member on the Senate side who's been close to some of this stuff Um, and not somebody who you might think, who indicated that the president's speech made the situation, the negotiations better, Mm -hmm. indicated to me that they had heard from Democrats who you wouldn't think of who were suddenly interested in border security because Democrats now are realizing their political vulnerabilities on border security and think that if they can get something there, it's probably not going to be what the Republicans want, but get, you know, kind of half a loaf, a quarter loaf on something uh, that helps them politically. Uh, And here's the other thing, you know, we went into this December and everybody said there's no real deadline. Well, right. The deadline's the end of the year. 
Mm-hmm. So that we, ha- we had this big blow up in this classified briefing the other day with all these generals on the situation in Ukraine. Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader in the Senate, came out and said that there was a Republican senator barking, yelling at these generals. Some Republicans walked out in protest of this whole thing. And then the president spoke. And if you look at the calendar, it was early December. And it's almost as though you need to have, and I've been to this dance so many times over the years, especially in December, that that's when everything blows up. And then they look at, at the calendar and they say, oh, you know, Christmas comes on the 25th this year. Really? Oh, OK. We got three <laughs> weeks. Let's work like dogs. And they and they, they work like dogs and they get the thing done about the 21st, 22nd, 23rd. I have never seen in the last 13, 14 years where they get out of here when they're scheduled to do so, uh, you know, in the middle of December. So that might happen. But, Jared, you know, you know, it's kind of game on right now as maybe they rush to do this because they see the national security situation is so dire with Ukraine and Israel and they just feel like they cannot leave right now and get this done. And the other reason is that somebody who's for these things, Kevin McCarthy, is still a member. They need as many votes as they can among kind of the, quote, states persons here in the Capitol. Mm -hmm. And McCarthy would count as one of those. so can they pull a rabbit out of a hat on that? Maybe. That is unclear. But again, it is the calendar. And I, I, it looks pretty dark right now. But based on the reasons that I just stated, I would not be surprised if we are here on the 21st, 22nd, 23rd of December wrapping this up. Well, that was a good tease for uh, next week. And so we will have that conversation then, Chad. Always appreciate it. It's the most wonderful time of the year, Jared. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Another government employee is busted, caught working for the U.S. government while supporting the Cuban government. The department has charged former U.S. ambassador to Bolivia, Victor Manuel Rocha, with illegally acting as an agent of a foreign government. This action exposes one of the highest reaching and longest lasting infiltrations of the U.S. government by a foreign agent. Attorney General Merrick Garland said for over 40 years he was a covert agent of the Cuban government and wanted to affect U.S. foreign policy. Between 1981 and 2002, he was employed at the State Department. Those included service on the National Security Council with special responsibility for Cuba, among other things. It included service as Deputy Principal Officer at the U.S. Interest Section in Havana, Cuba. And it included service as the U.S. Ambassador to Bolivia from 1999 to 2002. After he left state, he advised the commander of the U.S. Southern Command, but suspicions were aroused and an undercover FBI agent recorded Rocha telling him the U.S. is the enemy. He told the undercover that his efforts to infiltrate the United States government were, quote, meticulous and, quote, very disciplined. And he repeatedly bragged about the significance of his efforts, saying that, quote, What has been done has strengthened the revolution immensely. 
Rocha was born in Columbia, raised in New York. He went to Harvard, Yale, and Georgetown before becoming a U.S. citizen in 1978. He then joined the State Department in 1981. I think the investigation to put him behind bars is probably over, but the damage assessment is probably just beginning. Dan Hoffman is a former CIA station chief and Fox News contributor. And let's remember that he's the third highly publicized case of Cuban intelligence recruiting U.S. officials. There was Anna Montes and then Kendall Myers, another State Department official who was also teaching at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. And for some reason, those three people decided that they wanted to go work for a state sponsor of terrorism, Communist Cuba, for ideological reasons, certainly in the case of, of these three. And so there's got to be a damage assessment that that takes place, especially because he was ambassador to Bolivia, albeit, you know, 20 plus years ago. But still, he would have been read in on all sorts of policies and intelligence operations we were conducting. And let's remember that after he retired, uh, he was an advisor to Southern Command reportedly from 2006 until 2012. So he continued to maintain access to U.S. uh, foreign policy decision makers in the defense side of things. And that's also of concern. So I I would expect the U.S. intelligence community, Department of Defense, the State Department, all collaborating right now on a counterintelligence damage assessment. And these things aren't like fine wine getting better with age. You've got a lot of work to do quickly to determine whether your sources, your methods uh, and your policies are at risk. Dan, how significant is it that Manuel Rocha is not charged with espionage? He's accused of acting as a foreign agent. Is that a matter of finding the evidence to prove espionage is missing or just that there's a differentiation here that that holds up? Yeah, I'm not a lawyer, uh, but I have been involved in lots of espionage cases. And this is something that lawyers will do because it's very hard for them to prove espionage. That would involve our own sources and methods. I can't tell you how we caught this guy, but I can tell you that we catch spies with our own spies who tell us who the spies are in our midst. And so if we were to, if he were to be up on charges of espionage, that would cause us to risk giving up our own sources and methods to prove that case. Ah. But this other case is far easier to prove based on his own admissions. You know, the FBI sent one of their own um, agents undercover to talk to him, and he he implicated himself in the spying. So right. I don't think it's going to be a hard case to prove, and he's going to go to jail probably until he dies, like Robert Hansen. Yeah, a great reference. So A.G. Garland, Dan, said this is one of the highest-reaching, longest-lasting infiltrations. Longest-lasting, we understand that, because it's it's been 40 years, right? But Right. Highest reaching. Is that a reference to the fact that uh, Manuel Rocha was at NSC? He was at the National Security Council in the mid-90s. Or is it more than that? Is, is Garland referencing that, that this person really had access to some you know, high-level data and information? So I think the, the issue is certainly he had lots of high-level positions, served in Santo Domingo and Honduras, Mexico City, um, as you mentioned, on the National Security Council, Director of Inter-American Affairs. But as a retired ambassador, he probably would have enjoyed, you know, continued access to U.S. in an informal way to State Department officials, among others. Who knows what his circle of friendships looked like? And I think that's something that the FBI is probably pursuing right now as part of the damage assessment is reaching out to everybody 
who was in contact with him. I can tell you that when Kendall Myers was arrested in 2009, if memory serves me, I was overseas at the time. We all got an email and, and it was a simple one from our counterintelligence center about Kendall Myers. And if anybody knew him, then we needed to call in and talk about the extent to which we knew him and our and our interaction. And the reason I, I highlight that is because I knew him. Um, oh, wow. I, I had known Kendall Myers. I met him in like 1991 or 1992. We had lunch together. Um, wow. And so, yeah, I mean, I didn't give up classified to the guy, but he was working at the State <laughs> Department at the time. And, you know, it was the most innocuous thing. Honestly, like, funny thing on the radio, I'll tell you, I was dating his daughter in the late 80s, <laughs> Amanda. Huh. Wow. And, you know, we did nothing came of it. She, you know, we were young kids in our early 20s, but whatever. That's how I got to know her dad. Um, and I didn't you know, he was like, oh, you're going to go work for the U.S. government. Let's have, you know, lunch down at the State Department. So we did. So I had to call that in. So what you're seeing across the board in the U.S. government is, hey, uh, you know, full court press here. Everybody who's had contact with with this this spy, Rocha, and needs to call in and, and have a discussion with the FBI uh, and with their home office, in my case, with the CIA when I was there, uh, about what transpired in those interactions. And that's an ongoing damage assessment, but we probably know enough to know that it is far-reaching and of grave concern to us. Dan, you, you know, you look back on this time, this is a, obviously a long span, most of it, the Castros were in power, Fidel and then Raul, and our policy changed pretty dramatically toward Cuba, right in 2015 when President Obama removed the uh, country from the list of state, sponsor, state sponsors of terror and, and, and travel restrictions were relaxed. Is it possible or even likely that Rocha influenced that? Like he did tell this undercover agent that he looked at his work on behalf of Cuba in this way. What we have done is enormous, more than a grand slam. It certainly makes your imagination run wild about what he might mean. Yeah, so this is an intelligence officer's dream. When your country is negotiating a transformational deal with your adversary, you sure would like to have spies connected in your adversary's government and at the highest level. So even though, again, Rocha was retired at that time, I'm quite sure he was providing his Cuban intelligence handlers with all sorts of valuable intelligence about U.S. plans and intentions, negotiating strategies, all sorts of things that would give Cuba an upper hand. And that also caused grave damage. It's all going to be why he has to you know, remain in jail until he probably dies there. Um, and I'm sure we're going to see more publicly about this. I wouldn't be surprised if it comes up in hearings, public hearings even, where the State Department is grilled about what went wrong and why it took 40 years to uncover this spy. You know, the last thing you want to do is allow a guy to be able to spy against us for that long and cause that much harm without being detected. Yeah, it is disconcerting now, knowing especially like that China is spying on us from Cuba. You know, Russia and Cuba have this long relationship. So does Venezuela. Iran does to a certain extent, at least with Russia and Venezuela, they do. And the nexus here to all of our adversaries makes you wonder, you know, what sort of information do all these adversarial countries have now? Or or is it maybe has it was it maybe mitigated? Did he, we just don't know what all he got to these countries? Well, you know, Cuba is a poor country that that relies on on, as you point out, Russia and China, particularly for assistance, humanitarian assistance, military assistance, intelligence. And Cuba trades in 
relatively inexpensive asymmetric intelligence on the United States. That's their currency when they're dealing with their benefactors in Beijing and Moscow. And that suits China and Russia. You, you pointed it out. You know, China has a new military intelligence base they've been operating since 2019. They're using that to track, among other things, for sure, U.S. Uh, maritime operations and Gitmo naval base. And it makes uh, Cuba a bit of a, of, a, of a hornet's nest. And let's also remember the Havana syndrome attacks against our, our diplomats and, and officials. And it began in Cuba and then were certainly taking place all over the world. So, you know, Cuba's a forward operating base for our adversaries. And this is just another example of that. Wow. A forward operating base for our adversaries. That's and it's 90 miles away. Um, OK, Dan, finally. This is obviously speculation. I know you don't know, but what do you think or what could you speculate might have been the impetus to even send an undercover agent in to talk to this guy? Like what sort of suspicion gets developed after 40 years and this guy's been retired? Well, when we're running our own penetrations, our own sources of other countries' intelligence services, the first question you always ask is, are you aware of any threats to the United States of America, to our homeland, to our citizens at home and abroad. And then also, are you aware of any intelligence operations directed against the U.S.? And so typically that's the way things go. We may have we may have had a source, I'm speculating here, who told us hmm. something about somebody who might have been spying. It may not have been this guy's name. It may have just been something, some sort of innocuous bit of uh, evidence that, that the FBI needed to look at very closely. It may have taken time, a lot of gumshoe work, but eventually, and they were able to determine that this guy was was a spy um, and they would have had to go through a lot of um, you know, legal approval in order to track this. And that also takes some time. And, and we've got, you've got to prove it, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, doubt that this, that that's what this guy was doing. So typically we'll get uh, intelligence sources will tell us who a spy is. But then if you remember the case of Rick Ames, it took us a couple of years to prove that he was actually spying for the Soviets because we have that burden of proof. So my guess is that this is what happened in this case. And uh, mm-hmm. these things take time. And he was deeply buried in inside our national security, gosh, and uh, and caused a lot of harm. It's it's a real, you know, the, the, the silver lining in these sorts of dark clouds, counterintelligence stories is that there's something to be learned uh, for CIA officers, for FBI as well, about how to uncover a case and and how to strengthen our defenses. And, and we'll, I'm sure, take those lessons to heart going forward. You know, we heard from FBI Director Ray this week that the terror threat is at yet another new high since October 7th. And he said he answered a question about blinking red lights after 9-11. And he said right now he sees blinking red lights everywhere. Um, I, I don't I, I we haven't been told of a specific credible threat. Right. But hearing that from the FBI director, what are we supposed to do with that? Well, first and foremost, it reflects his concern about what his the off, the FBI agents under his command are focused on right now. And they got a lot to worry about. They've got Chinese full throttled espionage against us where they're stealing our intellectual property and conducting all sorts of espionage op- espionage operations they got Russia China um and 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 Iran uh, among others and of course criminal cases but he's ringing the alarm bells 
because his he's, his agents are seeing it. They're collecting lots of intelligence through cyberspace by engaging with state and local law enforcement through their human sources. This is what the FBI does. What it means for us, for you and me and all our listeners is see something, say something. You might not think it looks like much. Bring up your, you know, your local police station or, or call the FBI and let them know that what you're seeing is an anomaly and it doesn't look like it really makes sense. It's OK if you're not right. Let them know. Let them go in and see if there's really anything to your concerns. But I, what I found over the course of my certainly my career at CIA, if, if you see something that, that you know, makes you feel a little bit like there might be something wrong. If you're out on the street, that means leave. <laughs> That's not the right place to be. If your gut's telling you that something bad might be happening, trust your gut. Um, and that's the FBI has always relied on 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 the good, the patriotic American citizens who come forward and tell the FBI about what they're seeing that concerns them. And we've seen many cases where the FBI has been able to foil terrorist attacks precisely because a concerned citizen warned them in advance. Now, that's kind of your last point of attack there against a terrorist. You know, you'd like to learn about terrorist threats way, way out left of boom maybe months before those attacks are planned. But what we're seeing now because of the the war in Gaza uh, is that people are being incited by Hamas barbaric terrorist attacks um, and and they are mounting, you know, attacks of their own. And uh, that's what the FBI is focused on and rightly so. If you see something, say something. We've heard that phrase so often, but I think the additional tagline, it's okay if you're not right, is pretty important. Um, Dan Hoffman, thanks so much for joining us. All right, my pleasure. That'll do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington. This week, we're watching Congress as the impeachment inquiry against the president moves into its next phase, and we hope to learn more about the indictment into the president's son, Hunter. Until then, thanks for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.